on Disney Plus. Stream the stories you'd expect, like the Disney Pixar classic Toy Story. To infinity and beyond! <laughs> Plus the stories you wouldn't. My flock. This will not be the war of heroes. Like the action-packed The King's Man. Very clever. All these plus more, available to stream by spring on Disney+. Plus. 18 plus subscription required, T's and C's apply. At times it's becoming farcical and you have to really feel for these players and management. This isn't normal in any shape or form. For your first chance to hear Brian O'Driscoll on OTB, download the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance you can sort anytime online, then bounce on with your day. Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie. Brian O'Driscoll on Off the Ball with Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us, everyone in. All right, you're listening to Rugby on Off the Ball. Nathan Murphy with you, and I'm delighted to be joined by Brian O'Driscoll. How are you keeping, Brian? Merry Christmas, Nathan. I'm good. Merry Christmas. Fresh, fresh from roasting Tommy Bow on Ireland AM. <laughs> I had a right old laugh while having my granola this morning. Well, yeah, I was on doing some stuff with um, Children's Health Foundation, um, but obviously we're chatting around European rugby and a few other bits and pieces. But to be honest with you, I had it in my head that I had to get 10 siblings out in some shape or form. And it didn't really matter what questions he was asking me. I had to try and maneuver and manufacture a way to get 10 siblings in. But he, he asked me a leading enough question to be able to do the hatchet job that I was hoping to do. But he's he took it well. And um, yeah, it was a bad beat for him. It really was. I know people will say, oh, I should have done his research, but trying to add a bit of light to us, lightness to a story, <laughs> you get absolutely done. How, how many minutes just, after it's that, that? It's the gift that keeps on giving, really. Well, I was going to say, how many minutes after that uh, 10 siblings line was first uttered by Tommy Bow did it take to get into the uh, former player's WhatsApp group? I, I <laughs> I'm in a few different WhatsApp groups and it was hot. The phone was the phone was burning in the back. If, if you're on a flight, you know, they would have been telling you to turn your phone off. That's how warm my phone was from WhatsApp groups. Right. But, um, he, he, do you know what? Like, like, yeah, listen, he's a champion for in, with, with stuff in general. He's a pretty cool guy. And when that happens, you just have to take it on the chin and wear it. And there's nothing you can do. There's no point in getting antsy about it. And I'm sure he's even able to laugh about it now. And I don't know if you saw, but there's there's now these cards out on the 10th day of Christmas. My true love gave to me and you open up to 10 siblings. <laughs> there's some genius people out there. Did Should you book by them? The, oh, <laughs> they've sold out. They've literally <laughs> sold out. <laughs> uh, you, were, you were there for a very charitable cause as well, we should say. I, I heard you were promoting it this morning and a uh, good chance for people to fundraise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've been an ambassador for, for Temple Street for a long time, but now it's under a new heading and Children's Health Foundation. And it's there's kind of no competition. It's not a case of competing with Crumlin or Tala or Connolly. They're all under the same one auspices where, you know, they're all channeling their, their and pooling their funds for the same purpose to make sure that sick children around Ireland are being well looked after and no more so than at Christmas time. So I think that's why 
uh, well, obviously that's why I was on. And, and, you know, you think about happy Christmases, about time spent with loved ones and family and everything. And some people would be stuck in hospital, parents, staff and kids. So, you know, to help that in any way. Um, you can and donate. I have the number here, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it is, good yeah, man. yeah. Good man, yeah. get on that. The, yeah, the number is uh, 5300. Uh, you can text back to, and um, that'll donate €4 Euro, uh, to Children's Health Ireland. So, yeah, go do that. Well done. Right away. Um, if you are listening to us on the OTP Sports app, well done. You're getting exclusive early access to this podcast. Uh, if you're not listening on the OTP Sports app, what the hell are you doing? Just download it right now, and you'll get that exclusive early access to every time Brian is on with us. And it is also the easiest way to listen to all our rugby podcasts, all our rugby and off the ball is with thanks to Vodafone, official sponsor of the Irish rugby team, team of us, everyone in. So we've just been through a Champions Cup doubleheader and the way of the rugby world right now is that that's about eight on our list of talking points. And this morning, it is a little bit insane out there. So we're recording this. It's a Wednesday morning, December 22nd. The latest news, because this is changing very, very quickly, but the latest news is that Leinster have closed their training ground at UCD to try to just get to grips with the COVID outbreak in their camp. That follows on from the news yesterday that the clash with Munster has been called off due to the outbreak. And of course, follows on from the postponement last week of the Champions Cup game at Montpellier, where the French sides ultimately were awarded a 28-0 win. It is a complete mess. But as we saw with Munster's mess three weeks ago, Leinster's mess currently, this could well be Ulster or Connacht's mess in a couple of weeks' time. The way Omicron is spreading is like wildfire. It's, I don't think you can really apportion any criticism to anybody with what's happening right now. Not right now, we can't. And I think um, the way that this variant has has kind of um, taken off, um, I, I think we're still in the early stages of understanding what the impact of it is going to be from a sporting context, let alone life in general. So, um, yeah, it does feel as though, um, obviously, Leinster right now have been impacted. We saw Munster a few weeks ago and... Um, and I think, you know, you're going to see more sporting uh, fixtures cancelled over the coming weeks because, you know, talking to, I got my booster um, the other day and talked to the doctor. He felt as though a lot of people are, are capable of, of getting this in January. And, but he also said with the hope that it might burn itself out. So um, you'd almost take column A for column B. Um, mm. because um, we need to, you know, be able to get on with, with life. Uh, I saw Pat Lamb on, in, in the Telegraph today saying that the Guinness or the Gallagher Premiership can't deal with another lockdown. It won't survive it. And that's how stark, um, you know, certain sports are the reality of them. That You know, if they can't be played in front of full stadium or half full stadium, that they're, you know, they just won't survive. It, it, they're, they're on their hands and knees at the minute. So, yeah, the, I guess from a Leinster perspective, you know, the weight of their argument maybe is diluted slightly by the second game being cancelled. However, you know, I think the crux of their issue is the um, the Munster Wasps Munster game and and the circumstances of which their the course of testing that happened over over that week period for Wasps and how players were allowed play, having someone within the squad tested positive within. Um, 12 hours or 24 hours before and that's my understanding of it. I think that's where their bone of contention is. It's it's not that, you know, it hasn't happened to other teams. It happened to Toulon mm. last year. So it, it's just that it feels, from their perspective, I think they, they feel as though it was different horses for courses, whereas it's got to be the same ruling for everyone. Does it though, I guess? That's the question. Is it possible to have the same ruling for everybody? Because you mentioned Toulon last year. That was one case with the Toulon squad that saw Leinster get a walkover in a 
knockout tie. People were looking at Montpellier and saying, well, there was cases there. I think it turned out there was one case in Montpellier and the Munster, whereas by the time it got to Thursday, even when the game was called off, there was over 20 cases around the Leinster camp. And we've seen clearly they haven't been able to get to grips with it. Um, if it's even possible to get to grips with it, they've had to close their training base. They've had to close this game against Munster. That it is a different scenario, even from the games that were postponed a day later, where that was government advice that the teams were not going to be allowed to travel. That right there and then, Leinster simply weren't in a position to play that game. And it wouldn't have been sound for the EPRC to allow Leinster to travel to Montpellier. Well, that, that's obviously the PCR medical team that that decided that ultimately because it was ratified from you know from an Irish perspective. Um, I think that's maybe where the the additional grievances were. Although you know, looking back retrospectively now, and the and the number of cases within Leinster, perhaps you know you, you could argue that it was a it's it was a, a good decision because it seems to have been properly infiltrated. That said, those twenty three or twenty four players that were traveling had been covid free pcr you know tested um negatively for pcr tests for for a couple of days but i i think with omicron i don't think we know even with incubation periods you know you see different guys that um you know were in i, I know of a couple of cases that that guy looked as though they were in covid you know situations didn't get it but then get up 10 days later so is that an incubation piece or do they get that off somebody else in that period of time. So it's, I think there's just so much unknown at the moment that we have to just um, roll with the punches at the minute and see see where this pans out. And, and it's not going to only affect, you know, Lens are coming into Christmas, people are going home, people are going to spend time with their families. It's going to be passed on. Um, and I, I guess, you would just be hopeful that you know people, where possible, will do things like like I'm sure players will be encouraged to do antigen tests before they go and see their families and so on, and and ask their families to do likewise to make sure that they do limit it as much as they can. But it does feel as though this potentially is gonna is gonna get out of control of 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 any body or any union or any team. It's because people are not willing to sacrifice another Christmas again for. Um, you know, for you know, of not seeing loved ones, it, it does put a focus again on the rugby calendar because there's what rugby can control and what it can't control, and it cannot control the spread of this virus. But maybe it should be able to control its own calendar. And it does feel again that rugby is sort of eating itself when it comes to the calendar, that the issues are exasperated massively because there's no room to postpone any games. That's that round of fixtures that have been postponed, even if Leinster was to be refixed. Where do you fit it in? If we're in a situation, and right now we're looking at uh, reduced attendances right till the end of January, the Six Nations starts a week after that. The entire future of the IRFU is dependent on having a full house at the Aviva Stadium for the game against Wales. They need that revenue for every aspect of the game. If they wanted to push that back a fortnight, the room isn't really there to push that back a fortnight. That rugby has left itself in a position through probably through the advent of professionalism and the breakdown between the different leagues, the different associations that they don't have any get outs here with this. And they don't seem to have learned any lessons over the past 18 months. There doesn't seem to have any camaraderie emerging between the different leagues or anything to try and all help each other out. Now they've been pulling in different directions for a long time. And I think that's a big part of CBC coming in as trying to 
pull you know pull everyone in the same direction and have um have kind of a bit of unity linked in across the game you know if you look at different countries different leagues have different priorities even you know the premiership and top 14 it feels at the moment that there's a real priority towards their domestic leagues versus europe uh, whereas counter to that definitely in ireland don't know about wales and scotland but definitely in ireland the focus is very much europe first um so it does feel as though, um, you know, we've got an overloaded season. We've been saying that for a while. We've been talking about player welfare for a number of years. And that's not just, you know, we're not just paying, paying lip service to, to something, be, you know, to for a, a talkative point. This is a genuine issue because there's so many games, you know, coming week after week after week. And with now with an issue like this of not being able to find a spare weekend or now you're going to find teams playing midweek if they are those if those postponed games are going to be replayed, you're going to have exhausted squads, injury hit squads, and it'll ultimately have a negative effect on the overall outcome at the end of the season of the best teams not playing against the best teams. So it does feel like a it's a perfect storm at the moment because of the circumstance we find ourselves in. But if you did have some spare weekends, if you did you know, leave a bit of wiggle room, it would allow for unforeseen events. And um, I don't know how they're going to you know, get those postponed games on round two replayed and when like it's, mm. There's, you know, Christmas is one of the busiest seasons for domestic leagues, you know, because you get full stadium, you play derby matches and everyone's excited about them. And then you're almost immediately back into Europe. And then before you take breath, it is Six Nations. Um, and then when you come out the other end, the Six Nations almost immediately into that round 16 of of um, of Europe or certainly what was um, the, the weekends um, dedicated for that. So... I don't know, there's going to be a lot of head scratching, a lot of uh, brainstorming going on over the next while, particularly in Europe, as to how they're going to find their way out of this. I'm sure we don't even know what's going to come on rounds three and four. If that well, exactly, happen, because the predictions, possibly, are, yeah. the predictions are that the peak will be around mid-January. The next round of fixtures start on the 15th of January, so the outlook isn't great. And I guess from an EPRC point of view, they do obviously need to satisfy rights holders, stakeholders, sponsors, and that side of it is hugely important. They also need to maintain the integrity of the competition. And is the best possible option that if there are issues in January that you just scrap the pool stages completely, you just scrap the quite convoluted group stage that they're at the moment and just go in with a straight knockout in April, week after week, and at least then you hope everybody's able to put out their strongest team. Well, they're going to have to have a couple of different plans, aren't they? You know, depending on what comes in the next few weeks. So I think they will definitely be looking at, at multiple options and, and viability around just seeing the, the, the competition, competition through. Um, it's the, the integrity of it has definitely been questioned through COVID, through no fault of their own because of, you know, the circumstances last year, these 28 nil victories for teams, you know, for, for uh, COVID purposes. Um, and so, you know, in 10 or 15 years time, will we look back and go, oh no, those were COVID and European victory. No, you won't. It'll still be a European victory. It won't, it won't matter how that side that manages to lift the trophy at the end of the year goes and delivers and, and manages to win it. But while you're living in the middle of it, I think we're all going, oh, gosh, this is painful viewing. This is not what we expect Europe to be. This is meant to be the pinnacle European or pin pinnacle club uh, competition in the world. 
And it doesn't feel like that right now. And because that pri priorities feel as though they're lying elsewhere with certain unions and certain clubs that it, it just you know, retract and take a little bit away from the aura that European rugby has held, has been held in in the last 15, 20 years in particular, even since mid-90s, since its inception. So, yeah, I... We could easily be having a different conversation in a week's time, Nathan, when we know a little bit more or where some some more you know science comes to light or data comes to light as to where yeah. we're at. So it feels as though we're, we're, you know, even by the time this goes to radio in two days time, you know, who knows that if, you know, the app listeners might, might get it fresh off the press, <laughs> but then those listening on the radio might be going, oh, this is old. No, you know. We let it that bit out, Brian. Don't you worry. We let it that out. <laughs> the app is where it's at right now. Enjoy the pulsating thrill and excitement of Greyhound Racing this week. You can't beat the feeling. Seeing the race unfolding live in front of you or doing it in style and comfort. Enjoying delicious dining at our bar and restaurant. Be there. See ShelburneParkGreyhoundStadium.ie to book and to check out our excellent offers and packages. There's a lot of fires for the IRFU to fight at the moment. Some of them completely out of their control. Some of them in their control since you were last with us. Uh, Civil war has broken out within Irish rugby on the women's side of the game. The quick refresher is that 62 current and former players sent a letter to the government outlining their issues with the IRFU, the substandard commitment from the union to the women's game, describing it as inequitable, untrustworthy, described the current plans for the game as being in disarray, says that the running of the game has been a significant failure. Um, the IRFU responded very quickly. Um, saying and refuting the overall tenor of the document, saying it was disappointing with the timing of the letter. Uh, the government came out and said they were disappointed with the IRFU's initial response. And then a major climb down from the IRFU saying that they would publish in full the two independent reviews that are currently being undertaken into women's rugby. They wanted to assure all those devoted to rugby, including the players who issued the letter to government ministers, that the situation that developed, particularly in the last week, is regrettable and we will work tirelessly to mend and build a relationship between the union and our players. And then the Minister for Sport, Jack Chambers, was on News Talk yesterday with Pat Kenny saying he had met with the players and the IRFU, thanked them for their leadership and the courage they've shown, said he was optimistic that the relationship could be Mended, outlined their concerns, said they had three core asks. They're seeking the publication of the reviews, which is now going to happen. Looking for better engagement and dialogue with the IRFU. They're going to meet each other in the new year to begin that process. And they're also looking for oversight and implementation of issues in women's rugby. And Sport Ireland are going to engage in that process that is now all about building trust and enhancing support. I don't think we're quite at the stage where it's going to be... Uh, Bing Crosby and David Bowie emerging from IRFU offices singing Peace on Earth. But mm -hmm. there has been a little bit of progress because it did feel as though they had gone to the edge of the cliff and pretty much gone over and there was no way back. But I guess there has to be a way back. Yeah, of course there has to be a way back. I, you know, first of all, you know, when when the letter was sent into government, it was an incredibly bold move from current and ex-players. Um, but I think it spoke of their exasper exasperated nature of where their voice had fallen on deaf ears um, for a number of years where they didn't take advantage of the um, the positives 10 years ago with beating the All Blacks in a, in a World Cup um, by winning the Grand Slam and nothing you know the 
the foundations ultimately that the development of the game was not properly put in place. And I think maybe lip service was paid to an awful lot of what was said and um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yet nothing was ultimately done. And and it, it took this you know shock reaction, which also was met with an incredibly um kind of foolish um you know reaction from the IRFU. And I think that the fact that they rode back on it, they realized that you know their error of how there's very little sympathy from their from their side of things. If the if the women are going to go and and publicly, you know, step past them and and you know voice their concerns, you can't come back and have a, a another bite and try and you know, put them down and and um and and kind of take take away from what ultimately they're saying. So, um, I and think they had to be shamed into that climb down. Like, while they they deserve credit for releasing the two reports, as you say, this was an inst- incredibly strong tactic that the players and former players had to take. They ultimately had to publicly shame the RFU into doing this. Yeah, they did, and I, I was you know when when the. Oh, when the letter was released and it, and it was made public, I was obviously texting a couple of different pals within rugby around it. And that, that's always been, a, you know, a contentious issue with the IRFU and um, is these reports, is the findings and, you know, um, ultimately the information that it leaked out. Now I understand as well, if you, if you, send out the whole report at times it can be damning to individuals as well with the, le- the level of honesty that they might have given um but yet ultimately un- unless you get these reports made public to understand what you know the failings are in particular it's it's fine when publics are made reports are made public when things have gone well but when they've when they've you know, struggled, and I suppose you could look back to 07 with with France. I'm sure many of us wouldn't have wanted that to have gone um, public, but yet um, you you don't fully know what's contained in them as individuals. And when you're not getting the answers that you're looking for, when there's no ultimate change thereafter, and which has definitely been the case with the women's um, team over the last number of years, their concern was that they weren't going to actually get the level of answers and detail that they felt that they as individuals had given to where the union had fallen down and it was going to be a watered down version of what they said and they weren't weren't willing to stand by that. And I can understand 100% from that perspective. So I think it's a positive that these reports are going to um, be made public, that we're going to understand exactly what the failings were and then learn from them and move on from them. And it, it does feel in some quarters that... Um, I don't think I'm not saying that there was an arrogance from the union, but it, it, it did feel as though, you know, by their reaction that the women's um, some some of the women's concerns was a bit of an afterthought. And I think this has grabbed their attention and this has turned things around um, when, you, you know, sometimes when you um, over, you know, go over someone's head, you, you know, you could look back and you could think, gosh, you, you know, from a women's perspective, you've got to be careful of the hand that feeds you. But ultimately, the union hasn't been feeding them, mm. so that's how frustrated they 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 felt that you know even their future employer, even you know someone that's going to help them change the game, they're they're not listening, and so we have to step out, step beyond you know their um you know their position, their you know the CEO, and go to government. So it's I think I think ultimately we'll get to where we need to go. It's just it had to happen too late. through embarrassing the union. Yeah, 
and too late because there's a, as you say, the momentum that was there 2013, 14, 15 has been lost. And I, I know you were very involved around the 20 by 20 movement last year. And I do remember being a quite a few of the talks towards the end as to what happens next. And there was a huge pressure put on media, rightly, to improve their coverage of women's sport and commercial partners to get involved. But the sense was it would all come down to the national governing bodies to go and implement. And when you think where rugby was in 2015, it was probably well ahead of all the other major sports when it came to the women's game. And the fact that it didn't embrace and enhance and back the game then is just so damning for everybody involved. And it does feel that at the end of this process, whenever that comes early in the new year, that they are starting from a, a pretty low ebb, unfortunately. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the big issue with the union is I think they misread the room. I think they don't realize that 30% of um, people that attend games in the Aviva Stadium are female. And they're not all participants. They're mothers, daughters, just sport lovers. And so they're watching the men, but they'll absolutely go and you know equally watch the women if those games are, are available for them to attend. So it's not just a case of... Um, those 62 voices being disgruntled and put out. There's a way bigger body of, of people um, that are not going to accept a lack of equality and a lack of energy and effort put into um, one sex board versus the other. And so enough is enough. And I think finally the union has has realized that it's, um, it's way bigger than maybe they perceived it to be initially. Yeah. I'm sure we'll be uh, covering this a lot uh, during 2022. Uh, all our rugby coverage here and off the ball with thanks to Vodafone, official sponsor of the Irish rugby team, team of us, everyone in. So Munster had a scrappy 19 win, 19-13 win against Cast at the weekend, but everything with Munster been overshadowed by the news that Johan van Graan is to leave the province at the end of this season. It's been confirmed he's going to go in as head coach with Bath, who are currently prop- bottom of the Premiership in England, but obviously no relegation there. Uh, four and a half years for Johan van Graan at Munster, no silverware. Still question marks about style of play and all that, but she's going back to the RFU, Brian. Uh, it all seems very, very strange how we had a situation where it seems contract negotiations opened last May. A new contract was signed back in August, but nobody was ever told publicly that he had signed a new contract. And then there's a six-month get-out clause within that contract, which, like Pat Lamb at Connacht and like Razzie Erasmus before at Munster, Johan van Graan has decided to use, and he's off and leaves Munster in the hefty place. If that is the case with, you know, with them taking advantage of a similar contract to, you know, I, I can understand from Rassi's perspective where he was, it's an international job. And so clauses are in contracts where there's a, you know, a, what, a, a perceived, um, you know, gr- bigger position, you know, which international rugby is versus club rugby. But when you're jumping from one league to another, you know, how are, how is that small print allowed where you can, you can, jump ship from one of the great European teams um, to a, yes, a European winner, but ultimately a team that would, they would be vying for the same competition year on year. I, I don't understand that. It can only be a financial piece. There must have been um, a close in there regarding um, something else on a, from a financial, from a, from a monetary point of view, because I, I don't guess that and I've never heard of that before. If you, if you, if you leave to go to a, a superior position, I can understand that. But to another league, and particularly at the moment, a team that's really struggling at the moment, you'd have to imagine there's definitely more to it than, um, than 
you know, just, you know, a favorite lifestyle choice. There's got to be some financial um, play involved. The other peculiar part of it is that while initially you look at and maybe outraged that Johan van Graan is jumping ship um, after just signing a new contract, also a sense that well, maybe they're happy enough to push him overboard because it, was this a success? Were there signs that if he had stayed for another couple of years, he would have brought Munster to the level where they are? getting to a Champions Cup final and winning silverware again? It's funny, you know, over the course of the last week or 10 days, it, 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 it felt like the, the position of power shifted. It was Munsters for a while, and then Johan realised that maybe, um, you know, there was other opportunities out there, and then, you know, Bath came sniffing, and all of a sudden the power appeared to shift with him because he was... He was, from our knowledge, he was playing one kind of against the other. Um, that said, um, I don't feel as though there's too many people that are brokenhearted down there that know what's going on behind the scenes. You're not going to hear anything from any players while he's still there, while he's still coach, while they still have competitions to to play towards. And so ultimately, I don't think you'll fully hear their feeling, their honest feeling until June of next year. But from what I've heard behind the scenes, there don't seem too many people devastated. No one's come out and kind of thought, oh, no, this is a disaster. We've we've lost one of the great coaches in world rugby. I think he's been proficient. He's turned things around. He's improved them, no doubt, from where he picked them up five seasons ago. But it doesn't feel as though they're at the level that the Munster fans and the, the, you know, Europe looking in on Munster teams are at right now there's lots of ability uh, lots of capability within that squad but I don't know if they're European contenders yet you know they have the ability to, for big one-off games at the moment yes but I don't know if they can consistently do do it yet maybe I'll maybe I'll rue those words later on in the year but it doesn't feel like they're gonna be kind of European finalists based on what I've seen so far this year and does your opinion of their potential change with this news for the remainder of the season because I heard Keith Wood on OTBAM this morning saying he didn't think it would affect Munster for the remainder of the season that the players are professional that nobody's just going to get a little bit sloppy because they know that the manager is going yet I know uh, from talking to John Giles on the football side he would look at Ralph Rangnick at Manchester United going in at a six-month contract saying that well if you know the manager's gone at the end of the season that there is a little bit of down in tools what, what would your sense be of, of what will happen? No, I don't think there'll be any downing tools. There'll be, um, you know, the good, good leadership in there, be it Conor Murray and Peter Romani will be pulling the team together at key times and they'll try and take a lot of ownership themselves of this and realise they're playing for themselves and, po- and probably less so for their coach. And that's the reality of it. When mid-season your coach tells you you're going elsewhere, it happened to us in 2005 where Declan Kidney decided to go back to Munster and he was actually let go towards the end of the season. And so when you realise a coach is, is leaving for a team that you perceive to be a lesser team, what for what looks like financial reasons, it's like you kind of question the love that they have for you mm. as a group, as a as a team. And so I think that's on you then to motivate yourselves. You, you know, you if you win a trophy at the end of the season, yes, he'll be part of that and he'll get the bounce on it. But ultimately, you know, you're playing for you, you're playing for the jersey, you're playing for one another, but you're definitely playing for the coach a little bit less because of his decision to, to move on. And, um, and particularly on the back of signing a contract extension going, I'm very happy. 
um, to all of a sudden within six months, you know, changing his mind and and uh, heading off somewhere else to a club that's massively struggling at the moment. That's pretty difficult to stomach um, from a player perspective. But I, I don't envisage them downing tools. Definitely not. That doesn't really happen in rugby. Um because ultimately as well, what they are playing for is they're playing for their future contracts, their future careers as well. And whoever does come in, the last thing they want to do is see is for them to see them, you know, playing at 60 or 70 percent of their capabilities because they're a bit peeved that that doesn't run in, in rugby. It doesn't players don't survive that. And there's someone else who will come in and play, you know, with their heart and play 100 percent and give their all. And they will ultimately be the ones that will get future contracts if you if you decide to take the foot off the gas. So what should happen next? Obviously, there's a string of former players uh, who are being linked and who maybe the Munster supporters would like to come back. Ron Nogara said he's uh, going to honor his contract at La Rochelle and now isn't quite the time. Paul O'Connell name that will be thrown around. Jerry Flannery always comes across as a really impressive coaching figure. Mike Prendergast did a lot of good work over in France. But at the same time, four of the last five coaches of Munster have been overseas. Do you, does it need a complete overhaul? Uh, Declan Kidney coming in as a director of rugby and a coach coming in beneath. What, what, what would you favour next for Munster? It's a good question. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. The, sorry, the one other thing I know, Johan van Graan is, and, and I guess the question marks around um, what level of contact will he have over the course of the season with Bath, with the likes of recruitment, with with regard to what's planning the following year. He can't genuinely expect to, you know, turn his phone off to all, to Bruce Craig and whoever calls him, Mike um, and Stuart Hooper um, for the next number of months and not answer their queries about where they want the squad to go, what players need to come in and so on so so forth. So you're you're you are playing two teams. It, it'll in Sod's law it'll be they'll end Munster will end up playing Bath in some capacity in the European <laughs> Cup, isn't it as well? But you, you wonder about that as well. And um so and, and, and on the other side who's making the decisions too. at Munster. Yeah, that that too exactly. Who's who's gonna who's gonna who's is he hungry to care about what players are going to come in, what you know, holes they need to plug, um, and and so the answer to that is I would take I would imagine that'll be taken away from him, um, where you'll have to look at the board or you look at um, you know the CEO coming in and talking to senior players about potential. Um, you know, new player base um, of, of individuals that they're earmarking because as well, the Alande's you know, potentially gone, Snyman's potentially gone. So these guys um, are going to, if they are moving on, they're going to need um, to, you know, to have their boots filled as well by you know, potential world-class players as well. The last thing they want to do is, is for their standards of the last season to drop. Um so, you know, I wonder, I do wonder around that, around what will come with, but with, with regard to... Well, go on, because I'm worried there now you're starting to filibuster there, because we want the headline. O'Driscoll says O'Gara should dump that La Rochelle contract and get back where he belongs. He, well, he said, it in this, he said it in his column, didn't he? You know, I don't have to you know, be breaking any news here. He said in his column that he's got a job to do in La Rochelle. He doesn't feel as though he's not the guy to break contracts and... But he, I, I also think he's got a pretty good life down there. They love him in La Rochelle. Um, you know, they got to two finals last year. It's his first coaching job. He's learning an awful lot this year. Um, and, you know, his family are well set up there. You have to, you have to remember, oh, there's loads of factors rather than just your decision. You've got to fit in um, uh, to, 
you know, to the um, to the feelings of how your family are. And it's not again, it's not it's not football money where it's life changing, mm. where, you know, where you can get up and, and you're going to pick up two and a half or three million quid wherever you go per season. And that's, it's not the case where you can up, you know, where money will solve other problems you know, around new friends, new schooling, where, where you're based somewhere and you're doing well and you li- you're liked and you like the area and you, ha- you know, there's community aspect to it and you, you feel ingrained in what you do. It's very hard to leave an environment like that, particularly when it looks as though you've got potential to improve um, the squad and, and also, you know, achieve something that they've never achieved before. I think they got to the semi-final last year. Oh, sorry, they got to the final, of course, final. last year. Yeah, so they so you know to to imagine how much of a cult hero he'd be if they managed to win a bouquet over there. So I think he'll do another number of years in France. And there is, you know, I've said it before, there is a little bit of be careful how quickly you get to the job you want. And I don't even know one hundred percent. And this is genuinely, this isn't, this is just my opinion. I I, I don't know is. Is Munster the job that he'd prefer over Ireland? Um, I would I would say, you know, from all coaches' perspective, you look at Paul O'Connell now, I think he's got the the perfect balance of you know being involved in the national team, but yet it not absolutely owning his diary on a on a day-to-day basis. So these things are are important. They you saw what it did to Anthony Foley, you know, prior to his untimely death. Um you know, he where it kind of it chewed him up and spat him out. And it's all consuming. It is um it's seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so you you have to be ready for you know to take that on. And I don't know if if you know Rogers would would be wanting to go into that role at at the moment with that squad, with where they are you know, balanced on what all, what's going on in his current life. I, I don't know if that would be the case. What about a return then for Declan Kidney, the quiet man of Irish rugby, director of rugby over at London Irish at the moment, maybe going in not quite as hands-on on the training ground every day. Do you think that is the sort of role that would, would suit him with maybe one of those more emerging coaches working underneath him? Um. Again, I, d- I don't know. Like in fairness to Declan, you know, he's gone over. He need a, um, you know, I think a, a week before Axel passed away, his he lost his wife Anne, um, and so I'm sure part of his move away, his kids are in college, have, you know, flown the nest, and so I think part of that was to try and realize and kind of an evolution of where his life has gone as well through the circumstance he found himself in. That's why he probably moved to London as well. He's done a great job over there. He's got a great coach in Les Kiss. He's got the, he's got his team playing a great style. Um, And so again, you know, does he want to go and and step back to court to all the memories of, of what he left behind? Um, you know, where it's not going to be the same without his, without his uh, lovely wife. So I, I think these things are, are really important. It's not just yeah. a pure sporting decision. I do feel as though there's way more to it. And so um, I, I think particularly, you know, I'm looking for him, but I don't know necessarily would it be something that would be attractive to him. You obviously spend a lot of time around English rugby and a lot of time around European rugby. Like money is a huge factor, clearly, for coaches. But like, is the monster job? Do you look at it right now and think it's a an attractive job? Not as attractive as as you know years gone by. I I think it's I think it's attractive, but I don't necessarily 
it, it, there's a little bit of poison chalice about it because the expectation levels are so high. And, and when you get into quarterfinals and semifinals, most coaches go, well, that's not a bad outcome. But in Munster, because of their success, because of that team in the Naughties in particular, because of what they did and the amount of finals they played in semifinals every other year or every year, um, that is now the expectation. And even though that has dissipated a little in, in recent times because of the lack of success, there's still, every, you know, with, with Van Grand's the conversation around him, well, he still hasn't produced his trophy, you know? Not every coach comes to a, to a club and gets a trophy, but yet that is the expectation. That is the minimum expectation to win a URC um, or ultimately to win Europe. So, you know, what coach that is very highly thought of is going to marry um, the, you know, the, the asks of the, of the board and the fans but also does the player profile match up to what that, you know, coaching ticket, there's lots of stars that have to align there the to RFU get the right system. guy. Work within the RFU system. You're going to have certain players taken away from you at key moments. You've got, unfortunately, a 10 that's, you know, that at the minute is a little bit injury prone, has had some bad luck with some, with some breaks. So it's hard. You're, you're kind of maybe looking in from afar going, how am I going to build a team around? What guy do you land and name? And are they going to go? So who comes in? So I don't think it's as attractive as it, as it once was, but yet it's still a big gig in Europe. And maybe it's that next tier of coach that comes in, the Michael Checker that comes in with maybe not a huge reputation, but, uh, or, or even a Joe Schmidt. You have to remember when Joe came into Leinster, like he was, you know, he, yes, he'd been in Claremont, but he'd, he was, um, you know, he came from Eason Asiwa's recommendation as to what a great coach he was from the Blues, from being an assistant coach. So maybe they need to take a chance on someone that has brilliant ideas, you know, brilliant energy and a, and a, and a clear plan and strategy rather than necessarily the reputation that comes with some of these, um, you know, Southern Hemisphere um, coaches. So it's it's going to be a difficult one. It's a big decision for them as well, because there's been a big turnover of coaches in recent years. And do you go back to one of your homegrown, one of your own? Mike, you know, Mike Prendergast, for me, is the obvious choice in those names that you mentioned, because, um, you know, he's clearly built his rugby IQ, um, his understanding in, in, a, in a kind of couple of different teams as to what way he wants to play the game. Um, and then he'll obviously have the passion as well. But but again, I don't know Brendy, but is he a guy that has uh, an appetite to come back and and throw himself into a, a, a kind of maybe a make or break gig for him as well? If he did come in as a, as a head coach, it works well. Well, the, you know, the sky's the limit. It works badly. Where do you go to from there? And I'm sure his family is very well settled in France as well at this stage. He's been there a number of years. So more factors to it than the meets the eye. Just before we let you go, we should mention the rugby that happened on the pitch last weekend. It, it does feel as though it doesn't matter as much as it should have because of all the confusion as to what's going to happen next with the Champions Cup. But Munster beat cast 19-13 with maybe a performance that underlines why there's mixed feelings about Johan van Graan leaving. Ulster back-to-back wins. They beat Northampton 27-22 and Connacht uh, with a late drop goal from Jack Carty, got the bonus point, beaten by Leicester 29-23. Jack Carty seems to be the main talking point out of the weekend, particularly with that injury to Joey Carberry. Again, we're heading a month away from a Six Nations, wondering who will be the backup to Johnny Sexton. And 
the point I heard being made a lot is compared to a Ross Byrne or a Harry Byrne that like Jack Carthy has that leadership quality because he's playing week in, week out with Connacht and because the team revolves around him that maybe he can take more on his shoulders than some of those other players can. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fair argument. Um, the only thing that I would question, and listen, there's no doubt he's been playing great rugby and I was over you know, for the Stad uh, Francais game um, two weekends ago. Uh, I gave him out of the match because of his performance, his you know, try-scoring passes that he was picking and he was the, he was ultimately the, the difference between the two teams. I think he gave three try-scoring passes or created three moments that led to three other six tries. Um, there's there's lots of concerns around his goal kicking, but someone made a great point to me as well. What are his stats like away from the sports ground on his goal kicking? You know, everyone struggles there. So imagine that's your home ground. So what are his numbers like, which I'd be really interested to look at. So maybe his goal kicking isn't whatever 67, 68%, um, you know, in away grounds where it's miles easier to knock it over. And I think if that is an issue, well, then maybe that could be, um, you know, you know, a, a change of stats could could kind of um, contradict what we all think. Um, he's he's not been in the top four out half. So all of a sudden, does he go from fifth to two? I'm not so sure. Um, in in Andy Farrell's mind, I I just don't think that Andy Farrell is convinced by him, even with him playing as well as he is playing. I think he will pick him in his squad if he continues playing this way, but I don't necessarily think that he's going to um, pick him right in his twenty three uh, based on those performances. He's gone with the other guys for a reason. Um, Joey obviously gives a, a, a terrific uh, security to Johnny and the way he's come off the bench and particularly the way he finished off the game against the All Blacks, the way he played against um, Argentina. Um, but yeah, but now he's gone. All of a sudden you think, gosh, we're thin. You know, Johnny's injured at the minute. Joey's gone, maybe, you know. All of a sudden is there anything else so, he can do? Is, is it just a case as so often I, I don't, happens that John Cooney may point out that his face doesn't fit, actually, and that... It's not a case of, you know, this little 5% is missing here or there. He's playing to the best of his abilities, but unfortunately for him, the coach right now isn't looking I for what he has. A bit of that. I think there's potentially a bit of that. And, you know, you get residuals from good and bad moments with coaches where they remember you going well in tough times, but also struggling in, in tough times. And, I, and I, I've said it on the show before that, you know, it leaves an indelible mark sometimes. And I know people at home will say, oh, let, let the past go, whatever happened in Japan. It wasn't just one guy and, and they're right um, against uh, the Japanese in that pool stage. But ultimately there, there were, um, you know, a number of factors that led to him not having one of his greatest days in green. That said, he's playing very good stuff in the other green team at the moment. And he does have a comf- comfort and confidence within that team um, but he's he's playing an all-round game. Anytime you score, you know, one of everything in a game, you know you're playing okay. I don't know any guy that scored, you know, tried drop goal penalty conversion and played poorly. Um, so to have the confidence as well to, you know, to knock that drop goal at the end, I, I feel he's he's definitely in a in a place that he's ready for that next step of of international rugby. Whether he's going to be granted it or not by the coaching ticket, we'll have to wait and see to that first squad coming out. But he's doing everything that he can possibly do to get back in international reckoning. I just don't know whether 
that's enough from um, from Andy Farrell's perspective. And John Cooney's right. I think certain guys that the face just doesn't fit. You're not that. You're not the coach's guy, and 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 you just won't see guys playing in an international team, irrespective of how they play. And that's the way, unfortunately, the sporting world works sometimes. We got to leave it there, Brian. Uh, enjoy the Christmas. Are you doing the cooking? No, I'm over Oof. to my sisters on. Uh, Christmas Day, but then I am I'm cooking a second Christmas dinner on Stephen's Day for my in-laws. So I still have to go through it all, but with less pressure. I presume we'll get the full Instagram experience. Oh god, what, what's, what's the point in doing it if the whole world doesn't see it? <laughs> I'm going the egg again this year. So um yeah, I'm gonna um I might what, try and the egg? Yeah, like the the smoker, my Kamado Joe. Oh, the red yes, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So I I did that last year and my brother-in-law, quote unquote, the best turkey I've ever tasted. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I will, um, no pressure to, the thing is, you can't ruin Christmas dinner on Christmas Day. It's not the worst if you ruin it on Stephen's no, Day. Stephen's you know, Day, get, Stephen yeah, Day, get over it. Yeah, exactly. People are fed up with turkey at that stage anyway. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, I hear... more, more gravy over that burnt turkey. Exactly, and have another glass of wine. It'll all be grand. Correct, correct. Um, uh, well, enjoy cool. it. All right. And enjoy Santa one. and all that. Good luck. Cheers. Talk to you. Bye. Uh, all our rugby coverage here on Off the Ball. But thanks to Vodafone, official sponsor of the Irish Rugby team, team of us, and get on to the app. Download the OTP Sports app. And you can hear Brian O'Driscoll, Brian O'Driscoll exclusively first every single time. We'll talk to you soon. Brian O'Driscoll on Off the Ball with Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish Rugby team, team of us, everyone in. Enjoy the pulsating thrill and excitement of Greyhound Racing this week. You can't beat the feeling seeing the race unfolding live in front of you or doing it in style and comfort. Enjoying delicious dining at our bar and restaurant. Be there. See Shelburne Park Greyhound Stadium.ie to book and to check out our excellent offers and packages.